Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Pick Toggle shares his path from semi-target school to working two grueling years as an investment banking bulge bracket analyst. Learn what it's really like behind the scenes and how he was able to successfully pivot to private equity in 2008, even though he was very late to the typically on-cycle recruiting process. Listen for his advice on how to deal with recruiters, but also how much carry bonus one should expect as you rise through the ranks in private equity. Enjoy. All right, Pick Toggle, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to uh, happy to be doing it. So it'd be great if you could give the listeners a quick summary of your bio. Sure. Um, so I've been out of school now, uh, undergraduate, for a little over a decade at this point. Um, I went to school in the Northeast, um, was in a program specifically within management, uh, but also had a nice, uh, you know, mix of art, arts and science classes uh, along with the undergrad management classes. Mm-hmm. Um, did a summer internship with a major Wall Street bank um, during the summer in between my junior and senior year. Really enjoyed it. Um, it was everything I had hoped it would be in terms of drinking from the fire hose and just you know, learning everything about the sell side in the context of the small group that I was in, um, and decided you know I, I interviewed a little bit after that summer when I was a um, fall semester senior, but really mm-hmm. decided that I wanted to go back to that group for for full time. So graduated in two thousand and eight, uh, which was quite the interesting time. I didn't know it at the time when I graduated in May. Mm-hmm. Um, but right after training ended in August of 2008, the world kind of went to crap um, in September of 08. And so that's how I um, started my investment banking analyst career. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Then, yeah. what happen- then what happened? Did yeah. you, get, did you uh, get fired? or? You- <laughs> no, I, I actually didn't. We, uh, my group was mostly unscathed in terms of analysts. Um, we had one or two out of our entire class that was let go. But for the most part, everyone hung in there. Um, yeah, you know, the unfortunate side effect of everything that was going on in the financial world at that time was unless you were in re, you know, heavy restructuring, um, the Lev Findesk was pretty busy. I was in the consumer business services group. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of pitch activity, which was good from a learning experience, but over time that the pitches became pretty similarly. And oddly enough, um, amend and extend was just the flavor of the month, flavor of the quarter, flavor of like two years. It almost was a situation where a lot of 
banks and owners were scared into a you know a place where it was just stasis mode mm-hmm. and unless a company was running out of cash they're actually capital markets or M&A wise there was just not a lot of activity and so I think I, I might have arrived at the natural conclusion that um, banking wasn't for me forever maybe a little bit sooner than had I been a little bit more busy but you know probably 12 to 18 months on in my career I started thinking about what the next chapter would be like. And that's late actually nowadays. They're interviewed for private equity right when they hit the desk now. <laughs> I don't know yeah, <laughs> I know, which which is totally different than when I was around. And quite honestly, like I don't know how I'd be able to find a job today mm-hmm. on the buy side if that were the case. Cause I didn't even know I didn't even know which way was up. And I had done um uh, my summer analyst and I still didn't feel like I really knew what I was doing when I hit the desk. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was uh, an analyst as well, I didn't know I didn't start recruiting until my second year. And I didn't have a job lined up till like three months before, which sounds like it was plenty like a normal process. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but exactly. Nowadays they'd be like, "What do you mean? You're like two years behind." Yeah, um, yeah. You're you're like the dregs of the uh, analyst class. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so you're you're kind of uh, you're figuring out like in a year, year and a half in, you're they're saying this is probably not for me. Maybe partially because of a lot of the pitch work and whatnot. So um, you end up eventually getting to the buy side, correct? Yeah, eventually getting to the buy side. And my I would probably characterize my path as a little bit unique, both from just how the world was when I was interviewing. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to get to a very specific geography. So I was in New York and I wanted to get back up to Boston actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that limited the universe of not only were there not many groups interviewing to begin with, but that inter limited the number of groups out there that I that I was actually having uh, real conversations with. I was also I was using recruiters, a lot of the familiar names out there, but also doing a little bit of legwork on my own. Um, And so ultimately interviewed with three or four different groups um, and came across the group that I eventually joined um, and was really interested in a, a, quite a different model than I had been exposed to while I was an analyst, certainly in a industry group. Most of what you experience in terms of your buy side interactions are either growth equity or big LBO platforms, either for the upper right. middle market or lower middle market. The group I ended up joining was actually a little bit more special situation focused. Um, and a lot of what they were doing and what we still do, I'm actually still with this group. Um, is more debt oriented, uh, second lien and unsecured. And I was really interested in that approach, um, in that investment methodology and structure. Um, and one of the so big reasons before, why. Before we go like into the de- into depth there, so you've been there for a while now, right? And so yeah, just left my uh, nine year anniversary. So I'd love to dig into that more later, but let's go all the way back to undergrad first. Sure. Let's, let's start from there. So you kind of, Went to undergrad. Was it was finance and investment banking always on the radar? Or when did you kind of hear about it, start prepping for it, and how did you end up finally landing that kind of critical summer internship? Yeah, so almost no to both of those questions in terms of what was on my radar. I grew up; my father's an engineer, and so I always had that mind in terms of really enjoying my math and science courses in high school and hating everything else like English and history. Basically, like things I actually had to write. Uh, right. I, I just would, I really enjoyed my calculator and, and that was about it. So, <laughs> <Fair>. <laughs> um, 
And, and so I knew I wanted to do something in that vein, um, looked at some colleges and undergrad programs that had engineering, ultimately just didn't love the set I was looking at. Um, and so ultimately landed uh, in the Northeast at a school that had a pretty, pretty rigorous management school at the undergrad level, but also had an honors program within it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I, that's what I really liked. And so for me, it was, um, I don't want to say process by elimination, but it was a confluence of factors that led me to de decide to go to this one institution. And then while I was there, freshman and sophomore years, I looked at the upperclassmen above me and those guys and gals that I really respected. It seemed like everyone was going to this thing called investment banking. Uh, I had no idea what it was, but that's what they were doing as junior interns and after school. And I felt like if I want to go do the next thing that's really going to challenge me, that's what I have to go do. I feel like it's the same thing with me. I feel like it's almost like for kids that don't know exactly what direction to go as a first step, it's a great step because it, it leaves so many doors open. Um, yes. And it's, it's funny because even at Williams where I went, it, it was like a small liberal arts college. It is a huge feeder into to wall street especially on a per capita like a per student basis compared to some of these other large schools. Yeah, for sure. um, yep. so it's kind of interesting because you just start hearing about it you know through the career center and in the career center is like it's like management consulting investment banking or like that's basically it <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> which one do you yeah. want i don't know if it was similar at your place but so you kind of the people you respected um that in terms of respect you mean like just they would get good grades they're smart yeah, they, they were smart. They were seen amongst their peers as like leaders in their own little class. They were also part of the same honors program. And so I actually got to interact with them a little bit and I, I personally respected them. But you just you got this feel like they weren't the kids that were just showing up to class and um, right. sitting in the back and, and goofing off. Although I did, I did my fair share of that as, as well. Um, <laughs> we all did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they just, they took it seriously. And, and I felt like, you know, I, I didn't go to school for athletics or anything like that. I really went to school, uh, both to have a good time, but to ultimately prep for the next stage of life and my ultimate career. And so, so I was it like sophomore year that you started prepping for this like when did you start dropping your were there like on-campus recruiting or was it limited like, yeah it, it was it was sophomore year that I went to a lot of on-campus recruiting events and you, this usual story was like listen we're not taking sophomores for these roles we're, we're right. really juniors but I at least got to know and develop relationships with some familiar faces that I would then see again the following year um, mm -hmm. there were also some really small programs like one or two week events I, re I recall doing something with UBS I think it was my sophomore year it was either over winter break or over the summer for like a week period where I got to go and it was a rotational program so one day we went to the Lev Finn desk the other day we went to the the trading floor um sat next to a trader and he like bought a barrel of oil for you and you like tracked it um <laughs> Uh, it maybe it wasn't a barrel of oil, but it was like some sort of commodities linked uh, thing that you had to tell them when to buy and when to sell. And so it just, it gave you a flavor for the option set out there. Um, and so it was little things like that, both from an interest standpoint, but I also said, Hey, listen, if nothing else, this is going to show well on my resume that I really am interested in this. And I've also got, you know, I'm taking the steps to actually really per pursue something here. And you were like doing finance and accounting and I assume your GPA was pretty high. Yeah, it, it was. I, I sort of majored in finance, both finance and accounting and GPA. I had heard that, you know, you have to be above like a three, six to 
even be in contention. And, and so it was, it was where it needed to be. Cool. And so you kind of start, was it a resume drop that got you the first round interview for the summer analyst spot? Like, um, yeah, it, it was, um, in terms of the summer analyst role, um, participated in probably every single, um, process that came to campus. Um, I think I had a pretty good success rate in terms of at least getting like those prelim interviews. And it's been so long ago at this point, I can't remember how many interviews I might've had, but it was, yeah, it was basic. Resume I guess you did like 20, res- my guess is you did like 20 resume drops and maybe had like between 10, 15 first round interviews, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. And I remember like some cover letter writing in there as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. That'll Which be- is awful because it's just yeah. like copy paste and yeah change a few names hope you don't forget to change yeah, the company exactly, name exactly exactly yeah. or spell like lizard lizard or something like that um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um so you so you end up getting a bunch of interviews you're you kind of had the right profile you'd shown enough you had met enough people shown enough interest were you doing like networking like any active or aggressive networking from your sophomore to junior year or were you just more like hey i've shown enough this is enough to get me a seat because they're actively coming on campus in my gpa it felt yeah, it was more the latter, um, and I can't, you know, today's today's world, I, I'm not sure I would have survived. Like, I, I probably would have had to have been more aggressive, but I was mostly sticking to the on-campus recruiting events and maintaining, you know, some level of interaction with one or two folks that I had connected with at those things. I also wanted to be mindful, like, I didn't want to just be badgering these folks, you know, during their day jobs. So, like, would you send them a follow-up email after, like, the info session thanking them, stuff like that? Or was it, like, something where you'd keep them updated, like, a couple times a year? Like, yeah, for, it was, it, I definitely sent follow-up emails if I had actually had a one-to-one interaction with them and, and got their business card, might have just mentioned something. Is that, is that awkward? Like, when you came, like, as a sophomore or, or junior did you feel awkward like going up and trying to force a conversation or, or were you just naturally good at that uh totally awkward and i was terrible at it <laughs> yeah because <laughs> i feel like a lot of times those info sessions are like traps they're like everyone's rushing to try and talk to like the three bankers there and kind of yeah it's it's a it's a feeding and... it's a feeding frenzy and so i a lot of um undergrads that I've talked to both from school and, and just elsewhere and, and some interns that we hired during the summer I just say listen like don't don't stress about it feeling forced and don't stress if for some reason you can't have that conversation right there's a little bit of this where you do have to be aggressive and hungry but at the same time it's it's gonna naturally happen and it's a grind but is it for- like so you said it's a feeding frenzy so like at the end of the thing they're they're sitting there for questions and people like do they start lining up or like how it just seems i i'm trying to remember back like it was so long ago for me what ha- what it was like i mean i didn't even know what i was doing i don't even yeah. think i maybe had one one-on-one with like an associate and it wasn't even a one-on-one it was like one on with three people standing around them no it was it was very much what you just described where um you know it was the session would end there'd be a little bit of q a with a mic passed around the room and then the first 15 minutes, you know, all the students would stand up, 20% would leave, 80% would rush around like the three or four bankers that had come. I found if you waited it out long enough, and so long as it's not like it was an hour after the thing ended, Mm -hmm. and the bankers were like really looking to get back home and get back to their pitch decks and stuff like that. If you waited it out, you, you would, the group would slowly whittle down to a point where you could at least have a real conversation with someone and just say, Hey, you know, so-and-so like really enjoyed it. You know, 
XYZ that you said actually, you know, related to this that I'm learning in class, or I found it really interesting. Mm. Um, now might not be the right time, but if we can find a way to stay in touch ahead of recruiting, you know, I, I'd love to do that. And if you got a card out of that, that was like the perfect in. Yeah. And, and you kind of leave it at that. You don't necessarily, if they seem like engaged, then you can continue it. But if they seem like they need to get out of there, then you let it be. Yeah. Like a, a, a good example of what not to do is was my interview with City, which didn't give me an offer, which like the night be, I heard from, you know, people that I was talking to mostly upperclassmen about, you know, when your interview's over and they say, do you have any questions for us? Like come with a couple good questions. And so I had just done some generic Googling on Citigroup the night before and found this one really esoteric deal that they had done in like Indonesia. And I was talking to like the FinTech bankers and I asked this question. The guy was like, yeah, man, I'm probably, I mean, we probably did that. I don't know what you're talking about. And like, that was the end of my interview. So (laughs) with the goal of sounding really smart and intelligent, I, it completely backfired because this guy was like, it's clear that this kid doesn't even know what he's interviewing for. And so I would just be, you know, I say that under the, the, in the vein of, you know, don't, don't force it and be yourself and kind of let those be hungry and, and assertive and aggressive where you can be, but don't, don't over force the organic moments. And I think, I think that's really, it's a good warning not to try to sound overly smart or demonstrate your knowledge with like an esoteric deal or an esoteric fact or, or something. Whereas maybe some of the safer questions, I don't know if you have specific advice, but maybe something more along um, the deal teams, how they're, how they're staffed, stuff like stuff that maybe shows how you understand what the role is. Um, yeah. I, I think, yeah. Asking a question about, the role or the types of deals that they've been working on recently, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, in order to get an understanding for how you as a summer analyst or full-time analyst might be fitting into the context of that overall deal is, is a good way to go. Yeah. I think in even having a little bit of knowledge about how the bank is structured, like M&A product group versus coverage group versus M&A versus, you know what I mean? I think what is, kind of digging into that a little bit may show that you've done your homework without it seeing and, it, and allow them to answer it. Cause they'll probably know. They obviously know that. hundred percent. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fair. yeah. Yeah. Um, so you kind of, you bomb city fair. Um, did you bomb a bunch of others or did you have a bunch of offers for uh, summer analyst spot uh, by the time um, recruiting wrapped up? For me, it was a trial by trial by error and trial by fire. I bombed a bunch of them. Um, and I probably had two at the end of the day out of the like eight full conversations I, ha- I think I had. That's great though. So yeah. in, in, um, you ended up at a very well-known bank, a great bank. Yep. So, yep. um, so were you like ecstatic or what was the thought? Was it like super exciting? Cause you knew that summer analyst offer usually leads to a full-time or, or was it kind of, you didn't, you still kind of were trying to figure out what this whole investment banking thing was. It's yeah, a- I think I was still trying to find my my feet and and I knew that the goal was to ultimately leave the summer with an offer, honestly more out of fear than because it was like if you don't get the offer, you've royally screwed this up. And if your summer bank doesn't give you an offer, no one's going to touch you with a 10-foot pole um okay. in the full-time recruiting process. So that was actually a little bit more fear-driven of like, hey, you got to you got to leave the summer with an offer, then you can make your choice. Um, and did you, you did back? you, so going into the summer with that fear, did you 
end up working like super long hours? What was it, what was the offer rate like at the end of that summer for the group? Because I know you offer guys- Offer rate felt like probably close to 80 to 85%. Um, and I can't tell whether that's high or low, but this was the summer of seven. And so things were still mostly good with the world. Um, very good. That's, that tends to be pretty average. It's yeah. usually between 70 and 90% is what I've yeah. seen, at least in the database from the company database that we have. Okay. Um, but yeah, so things were still rosy <laughs> in 2007 or yeah. it hadn't complete. There were some cracks maybe showing, but not enough to scare, um, scare the banks off. So we're, what about the hours? Hours were, were long and that was as expected for me, but you don't know what an 80, 90, hundred hour work week is like until you actually start doing it. And a lot of it was a lot of my buddies, you know, I lived in New York. What, what was the hardest part about that though? Like the 80, 90 hour, because I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I lived it, but tell me what was the most surprising thing about it? The surprising thing for me was the amount of work that didn't happen between nine and five and the amount of work that actually had to happen between five and, you know, whenever you went home, whether it was midnight, two, or sometimes three or four in the morning. Um, just the natural, it was like this natural cadence that developed of a lot of the higher level strategic thinking um, with the MD and the director's time during the day that that happened. And you were certainly part of those meetings, whether you were a summer or a full time. Mm -hmm. But then when it came down to the rubber meeting the road and actually doing the physical work, like that really started towards the later portion of the day. And so it felt like that took some getting used to just the days being quite long some inefficiency in the middle of, of it. Like, you know, sometimes you, you show up at nine or 10 in the morning, you're not really doing anything until early to mid afternoon. You're like, I'd rather just be sleeping at this point. Um, But yeah, you, you, you show up and you gotta be, you gotta be a part of the mix there. And and it's important to be around for all of that stuff. So that was surprising. And then I think, you know, just, friends that weren't doing banking but also in new york for the summer they're like what do you mean you're working 80 hours a week like why can't you come out on a thursday night and you're like no i actually can't i'm 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 here and i got to do my work so did you feel like was there any sort of reservation so you got the full you obviously got the full-time offer because you started there but was there any reservation about accepting the full-time offer was there or it was just like the peer pressure yeah <laughs> had mounted so much and you're like wow I'm, you get paid a lot of money and i know bonuses in 07 were probably huge right um, yeah so by yeah 07 point, was 07 was great 08 was not as good <laughs> yeah obviously right um but was it yeah, was the pressure yeah. just too great like thinking like just psychologically what what was your thought process when you got that offer um, you obviously worked really hard over the summer you got the offer it's a relief but then was there any thought process? Maybe not. Maybe this isn't for me. Or was it, hey, I'm going to learn a lot. Let's just do it. It was, I'm going to learn a lot. Let's do it. I, I really wanted to find the best place that I could be that was going to challenge me, certainly mentally, but in a weird way. And you, you might understand this as well, having done it like physically. There, mm-hmm. like, there is an actual physical element to all this, which is the constant grind and the stress for two years and I know to a comment you made earlier I know that you know I'm going to do this for at least two years maybe this is it for me and I want to do this forever my worst case scenario is that I've gone through the gauntlet and I'm going to come out really being able to do whatever I want after this PE hedge fund b school um, operating company if I want like 
it just felt like this was not going to close any doors for me. And it was going to be such a great learning experience that that's ultimately the, the big reason why I chose it. And it, yeah, and it is. I mean, I, I came out, I came from, I mean, you had finance and accounting. I had none of that. You can imagine what my learning curve looked like in the first six yeah. months. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was insane. And the hours were insane. And I remember like the first few months on the job, I remember there being like a Friday night and I hadn't gone home in like eight days or something like that. Or something. And it was like six o'clock and I thought I was going to get home. Yeah. Like there wasn't much on the plate. Like we cleared out a bunch of stuff and then like my BP becomes why I hadn't, hadn't like had anything to eat. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, you know, uh, we got to get this. Uh, da, da, da. All of a sudden it was a fire drill again <clears throat> on something else. And I remember just like sitting there and I remember thinking to myself, like I almost felt myself almost get like emotional. And like yeah. I, for somebody who's like, you, you pride yourself on like, I can do the hundred hour week and did it. And I was like, what's going on? I'm like, I felt myself like almost cracking. Yeah. Not cracking like, oh, I can't, I'm going to like go to the hospital or anything, but cracking in the sense of like, oh my gosh, like, like, what the fuck? Like, this this yeah. is crazy. Like, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to, I'm not going to have time to sleep again. I, you know, that, that type of like panic almost set in. And yeah. so it almost yeah. became like a psychological thing where it was like, okay, I just have to, like, you have to have no expectations. And like the sooner you, I, I felt for, at least for me, the sooner I, I let go of any expectation of leaving was the easier it was to deal with it. Yeah, in a, in a, I can commiserate with that 100%. And it sounds really messed up, but like in a perverse way, yeah. towards the, the back third of, of my career as an analyst, I almost started looking forward to the Monday to Sunday work weeks because you never had a weekend. You never had, you never had a case of the Mondays. There was no high to come. You never, there was no high to come down off of after like an epic Saturday, Sunday. Right. You just crank. Um, and that I took a step back at some point. I was like, that's probably not great. Um, probably a sign that I should go find something else. But I advocate for the investment banking experience for anyone who's remotely interested in it. I say, try to do it for a small period of time if you can. And if you can handle it for two to three years, it is such a great experience. Yeah, for sure. So I think, um, what about, so you were similar to me. I was trying to get up to Boston. You were trying to get up to Boston, except you probably had, you had a lot more challenge in the sense your timing was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you were trying to get up to Boston as well um, from New York. You, that second year, things started falling apart. Um, you lost, a, they, it sounds like they fired a few analysts out of, how big was the class? Like 50 analysts, 100? uh it's probably like 80 or 90 i think 80 or 90 so it was pretty big so firing a couple of people is not that big of a deal right um not not that big of a deal but we had also heard like analysts never get fired um and, and so to actually see it happen into guys that were not terrible i mean some of them were, were duds but yeah. um you know guys that were actually could do the job and still got let go that was actually pretty surprising yeah because they're cheap labor <laughs> yeah exactly exactly um okay so there were some firings at the analyst level, which was kind of unheard of. You knew things were bad, you, but you were still talking to the, the typical, I, I, we spoke about this earlier. You were talking to the typical recruiters, trying to figure out what's out there in Boston. And yeah, I, you know, I had, I spoke with somebody yesterday. They said that the buy side recruiting was still, it was a little slower, but it wasn't like it dropped off. Right. Um, there was still some activity there. Or did you feel like there were just, there was a lot less opportunity out there? Uh, mine was probably more Boston specific just because it was a pretty small community. It did feel 
I don't think in general the buy side recruiting dropped off, but in Boston it fell particularly low. Any thoughts on why that was? No, um, not really. I personally knew that I didn't want to go to a really big shop or, or a relatively bigger shop like an Audex or something like that. I, I wanted to mm-hmm. find a smaller middle market to lower middle market fund. Um, why why I, was that? What gave you that thought of this is, this is going to be a better fit? Because you were at a large bank. So yeah, I think it was more personal preference to be like a smaller to medium-sized fish in a smaller pond versus a very, very tiny fish in a much larger institution. Was that from your experience from the bank? No, um, less from my, less from the bank and, and more, I think, just how I'm personally wired. Like I, I, I really wanted to find a I hate to call it like a family, but like, you know, a, a, a smaller group of okay. guys and gals that I could really get to know on both a professional and personal level and really understand the buy side uh, in terms of that type of atmosphere versus just being plopped in and being one of another, you know, 10 to 15 person class. I was hired with one other associate at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I really liked that dynamic. And so when you were, um, the reason I pushed on that is because you ended up at a really large bank. I guess you had two offers. I don't know what the other bank was, but um, it wasn't a middle. I was like, why didn't you go middle market? You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. begin with. Um, so I guess you see, so you're looking for this, you're telling the recruiters all of this. Do you feel like they, do you feel like you were ready for those recruiter meetings, those initial ones? Or do you feel like maybe you dropped the ball and they were like screening you out of a lot of stuff for some reason? Like, were you ranked highly at your bank? I was ranked very highly at the bank. I think I, st- I hadn't done the legwork enough and I can't tell whether this is just because I didn't close enough deals or work on enough live deals while at. Oh, that can um, screw you. Yeah. That can uh, screw you. Bank. Yeah. It's just, I didn't really understand the buy side. I knew it was like flip side of the trade and all of a sudden you're the one doing the investing and deploying the capital and the diligence is going to look a little bit different. And certainly the process is different, but like, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. So I couldn't elucidate a lot of what I was truly looking for outside of geography and I don't want to be at a really, really super big shop. So do you feel like some of those interviews, like the standard why private equity, like your, your answer wasn't quite as polished as maybe some of their analysts who had been like practicing this one since they were eight years old, ready to get. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. I was the same way. Um, but we were both so late in the process. So it's like most of the shops are the most of the mega funds had already hired a year prior. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so you're interviewing for a lot of these uh, smaller shops, middle market shops. Um, what are you looking for when you're interviewing? Or like, are you just taking whatever the recruiters throw at you for practice? Tell me about that whole process. Yeah, I was definitely taking anything I could, um, a lot for practice. And I would say, um, don't do this too much, but you know, I, if I had to do it all over again, even though I was only looking at Boston, I probably would have taken stuff outside of Boston, mostly for the practice. Because interviewing is such an art in, in and of itself. And you definitely do need just the rote practice of telling someone you've never met about yourself and about your experience and walking through deals. And to your point, why are you interested in private equity? Why are you interested in this strategy versus another strategy, middle market versus large cap buyout and stuff like that? It's like that stuff just takes practice and you can practice with friends and family all you want. It's a whole different ballgame when you didn't get in the interview setting. So I don't advocate just taking interviews to take interviews and bouncing someone out of the seat, but like interviewing a lot infrequently to understand your own pitch is super important. And that's something I would have done more 
I really restricted myself to one geography. So I really, I had, I would pretty limited interview experience. Like a handful or so. Yeah, probably five or six. Um, yeah. And do you feel like um, in your prep for those, like weren't there, weren't there analysts at your bank that had like recruiting material or help or did, or were, do you feel like, were they all gone and like just checked out? By that point? Yeah, there, there might've been, but I didn't utilize them a lot. I had utilized some third years and then first year associates to, you know, help with the modeling exercise and building model models from scratch. But as in, as a first and second year analyst, like you can do that in your sleep. You don't really mm-hmm. need practice all that much from a blank Excel tab. You needed, yeah. You needed the WSO uh, interview course, PE course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, uh, 100%. <laughs> a little plug in there. Yeah. Um, so in terms of, um, it's just interesting to me. So you're, you're kind of late. You're kind of, you seemed like you were just grinding and just kind of putting your head down. You, finally we're like okay maybe i gotta you know get my act together and start talking to these recruiters were you, did they reach out to you had they been on your radar and then i, I want to dig a little bit more into those conversations because i feel like they're really important those initial conversations what the impression they have of you do you have specific advice on like how narrow you said oh i wish i'd interviewed more than boston but saying boston is actually in a sense kind of good because it shows them like this kid's like knows what he wants do you agree with yeah. that or do you feel like you could have maybe widened a little bit, but like New York or Boston. I think I could have done New York or Boston and then sort of like played up the Boston angle a mm. bit and just said like, Hey, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested. I'm not, it's not just Boston for Boston's sake. Um, mm. Because you do find groups that are recruiting for very specific geographies. And, and I think that's a large part of the recruiter's role is to be that intermediary between what the PE strategy wants and what you know what else what's out there in the market effectively like an investment banker yeah it's like a game on how much to tell them though in terms of how narrow to get like do i tell them hedge fund and private equity like for some kids they're like hey i don't know what i want i I do long short p i'll do long short hedge fund i'll do private equity i'll do distressed i'll do anything yeah when i get to the buy side but going in with that mindset can almost backfire right yeah you can't i i don't think you can be so wide and say i'll i'll do anything because then you're just not going to be, they're, you know, they're going to be a little bit reticent to put you in front of someone because of by nature of that. Yeah. I, I think whatever you, whatever you tell the recruiters, whether you reach out on your own or, you know, you're responding to the litany of inbounds that you're naturally going to get in your, your inbox, you, I think it's perfectly fine as a 22, 23 year old to be like, listen, I don't know exactly what I want. This is what I really like. And this is why I like it. Mm-hmm. And then that I think is going to help inform them where you're going to be relevant in a process. And also shows that you're like a real authentic person at the end of the day. And you're actually thinking about this. Yeah. Like a little more genuine, not have like a, such a rote answer you come across as more authentic don't go super broad but don't also try to like fake that you know this exact if you don't know that you have this exact type of fund in mind because you're just going to narrow your your opportunities exactly and it honestly is a numbers game and i think what when i was just starting out i i sort of was like i have to i had it in my mind that i had to find my not my forever home but the place that i was going to be at for the next 20 years of my career and it's like no, I mean, as a, as a mid twenties guy or girl, you should want to find the next right chapter and stage in your career, but be open that that can 
come from a bunch of different angles and there's not just one place out there for you at the end of the day. So you interview with a handful of places, you get a couple offers, you flame out on the first four and get the fifth or sixth. What, what was it like? I had three flame outs um, and two and two offers. Okay. And did the offers come like back to back because once one had, you had an offer, the other one jumped or how did it work? It was, it was pretty close. I actually, I won't bore you with the details. I actually, and maybe this is for another podcast around how not to accept an offer. Uh, <laughs> sure. this, this was, this was one that I had turfed up on my own and was not using a recruiter for. So I was talking directly to the private equity firm and I had some inside intel on what the comp package was for someone coming out of banking and they had lowballed me. And so I was like, I took it upon myself to try to get myself up to what I, you know, considered where everyone else was landing. And they actually pulled the offer from me. So I had, I, I guess I had two and round wound up with one eventually. So you got a great, uh, hey, at least you didn't have one and round up with zero, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I did have the backup. At the time, I didn't have the other offer. It was sort of oh, like on the come. Yeah. So that was a, that was a tell me, That's actually really interesting. So tell me about how you approached that. Was it like a, had you established some rapport? You'd obviously gone in for a, a round or two to get the offer, right? Yeah, I, I had. Yep. Was there like an LBO modeling test and then they give you the offer except lowballing you? Now, lowballing you in the sense of what overall PE associates make or lowballing you based on like knowledge you had at the firm what they paid uh more the latter uh lowballing me oh, okay. based on yep yeah so you had a legitimate gripe i did yeah and i thought i had approached it very well and maybe i just i don't know said some something that set the guy that i was talking to off but yeah it was it was not the outcome that i was aiming for <laughs> got it okay so you you gambled and lost <laughs> yep exactly. yep yep um, and you, but you had, you quickly had another offer, um, in the book. I think, I feel like once you get that first offer, did you tell the recruiters about that? I, I told the limited set cause I also was, I was cognizant that it was a pretty small and continues to be a very small world. And so I didn't necessarily want to tell my, my sob story far and, and wide about how. All but did you tell them you had an offer? I, I did. Yeah. Cause that could that changes the whole game in their eyes. I feel like it, it does. And you can't, you can't sort of fake that you have another offer. You like, you have to have a legitimate offer and in, in negotiating one one when the funny part is you say like, I have an offer. They like go frantic to try and get you lined up for other interviews. And then you lose that offer, but you don't, did you tell them like, Oh, actually just kidding. I lost that offer. Like, what was it stressful? Because did they like follow up? What was that? Hey, I'm trying to remember. I think it was, they, I think the questions were less around. Do you still have it? <laughs> yeah, it, it was. Because yeah. <laughs> who in their right mind asks if you still have an offer? Um, yeah. Um, it awesome. was. It was less that, and it was more. You know, tell me about the timing of this other process, and so I could genuinely say at, at the time, you know, this is this is what everything looks like, and so that that's how everything else got accelerated. But no, I mean, it's it's you know, everyone has FOMO. And I think probably when we do our own recruiting, private equity is notoriously, um, I think, uh, bad at this is like, when you hear of a candidate that has an offer elsewhere, it's like, oh, someone else thinks they're amazing. Like, we got to get on this too. And so it the offers breed other offers, which is nice. But I would say as a candidate, you also have to be mindful of 
you don't want to just be chosen because someone thinks that someone else likes you at the end of the day too. Yeah. Even the offers breed other offers, the offer breeds other interviews quickly. Accelerated yeah. interviews through the recruiters. Yeah. Well. Yep. So, and from the recruiter standpoint, you know, you hate to look at it, but like they're trying to get paid too. And so yeah. they want to be putting high potential candidates in front of folks. And so if nothing else, that offer, regardless of whether it leads to other offers is going to be good to show that you're, you know, an employable quantity. Right. So regardless if it gets pulled. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> you get too aggressive. Um, yep. So okay, so um, it's just it's just funny because that's like the nightmare scenario, and you you lived it. So was this like an email communication? I want to dive into that a little bit more. Where you were like, hey, I just noticed or I heard through a friend that this is typically the pay, or how did you approach that? It was all over the phone, um, and it was I had spoken with like the principal level and. Um, she said, okay, you know, listen, like I, I get it. Um, and I didn't reference, I had some friends at this group, so I didn't reference any specific conversations. I just said, you know, based on conversations that I've been having with recruiters and my knowledge of other uh, others that have joined you at my level historically, this is what I understand the compensation to look like. And I, you know, I'd really like to be there based on the experience that I'm bringing with me. And um, so I think I had had one and a half of those conversations with a principal. Um, the first go around, the, the feedback was no, the offer is the offer. And I basically asked her to go back to the well one more, one more time and, and sort of rewalked her through why, why. Oh, uh, so you, you pushed again the second time after they said yeah. that. Yeah. And that, that was probably my fatal mistake. Yeah. After that, that's when I got the call from the MD who just shredded me. <laughs> So the guy actually called you and like was at it was pissed. Yeah, he was he was pretty pissed. And it was after one of those mornings where I'd stayed up till like five in the morning to car books to my own MD and met him at the airport. And so I remember I got home, I got like two hours of sleep, and then I had this call, which I thought was going to be the call where it was like, okay, you know what, we've revisited, we're we're going to meet you at this comp level, and and all all was going to be well. And it was the exact inverse of that. And he was just like who do you think you are? Like that type of thing. Like yeah, it was a lot you? of that. And then I don't know if he entered the call thinking about pulling off or, but by the end, I think you, he got himself to a spot where that was the natural conclusion of. Do you feel like you could have saved it in that call? No way. No way. It was predetermined. Yeah, it was, it was a death spiral. <laughs> <laughs> you should have been like, Oh, so you, were you like very, were you trying to backpedal? Like, yeah, I, I did. And, and I, I, I tried to be super humble. I, I tried to yeah. walk him through, you know, from my, my standpoint, why I was asking for what I was asking for. Um, stress that compensation is not the most important quality in a job for me that fit culturally, professionally is, is number one. And I felt like this opportunity really had that. The learning experience was really great. Um, he still, that I was still he was just so riled up. He probably had a bad day. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do think it was a little bit of that. If I, I Certainly in the moment, I replayed that uh, situation over and over, but I've, I've sort of since done that as well. And I think I, I could see it landing in a different spot. But, you know, things also happen for a reason. And even though I came out of that pretty depressed for a period of like 48 hours, like the world, world goes on and, and life just goes on and you're going to find your spot. You just kind of kind of have to trust it when you have those massive bumps in the road so the good news is you were able to tell the recruiters hey I got another offer and so magically 48 hours later you had another offer 
Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't forty eight hours. It was a bit longer than than that, but it okay. was it was like bam bam. Um, at least you know, remembering it's, back today, it could have been different historically. But that's was, just, was the comp higher or lower than that initial offer you got? It was a little higher. Uh, so I felt yeah, I felt good about that. Okay, so you and, and also a little bit justified in in terms of like at least having gone back and and, and asked for a little bit more. Yeah, so you kind of uh, do you mind sharing what that was? Was it like around a hundred base or eighty base? Yeah, it was a hundred base. Okay. Yep. Yeah, about right. And then bonus potential of around a hundred, I guess, for your first year or something like that. Yeah, it was a little bit different because the group I joined actually, even at the associate level, had a little bit of a carry component. But like, if you think okay. about everything all in, it was it was close to that. Pretty similar. Okay, small yeah. small carry um, points, and then okay, so this is this is not your traditional. LBO fund, correct? And this is the, this is the same place you're at today. Yeah, same place I'm at today. Yep. Okay, and so you obviously found a great home. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. It's been. I, I definitely didn't join planning on. I certainly wanted to be, but like in terms of all my experience with uh, people in my class and others that I got to know in the industry, it was usually to and out to business school, and then you know you kind of find your footing from there. Um, had someone told me you'd be here for at least four to five years, I'd say absolutely nine years. I'd be like, damn, that's, that's a long time. So any thoughts ever to go back to business school or were there, was the opportunity to advance at your fund just so, so good that you thought I'm going to stick it out and tell me a little bit about if whatever you can share about like the types of deals you guys do. I know you said there's a little bit more on the debt side, the credit side um, in terms of how you guys invest. I'd love to hear, does it like, should I think of it as like Mez? You do subordinated debt. Like what, what are you guys doing? Yeah, I think MEZ is a good way to characterize it. I like to describe it as credit opportunities and special situations. Special situations, everyone's got different definitions, and a lot of people immediately go to um, distressed, loan-to-own, deep turnaround. That's not who we are. Mm-hmm. We try to provide really flexible capital solutions that sit below senior debt. Um, they might be unsecured debt, they might be really loose, deep, second lien, preferred equity is another tool in our toolkit. Um, and we do like to be equity aligned. We don't like to be just debt lenders in a business, but we're never going to be the control sponsor. And so we typically own anywhere from five to, you know, call it 25% on the upper bound um, on a case by case basis. It might be a little bit higher than that, but that's sort of the usual bandwidth. And We'll get involved in other sponsor-owned businesses. It might be an existing company that's gone through a bit of a bump in a road and they need some friendly, flexible outside capital to refi a difficult balance sheet or inject some growth capital into a business. Um, Are you guys looking for, I mean, my guess is restructuring. My background would have been great for that because I saw some really messed up debt (laughs) capital structures in my days at Rothschild. I was in the restructuring group. Do you guys typically hire um, analysts out of uh, restructuring shops like Houlihan and Rothschild? It hasn't been, it's been Lev Finn mostly um, okay. that, that have done really well with us, but restructuring a, a lot of, a lot of guys and gals will interview with us for sure. Got it. Okay. So you're, should I think of it like the types of skills you need to, to succeed at your job would be almost understanding complex balance sheets, understanding where kind of the, the value lies in the, in the capital structure, like in terms of what's the valuation of this company, what's safe, where can we align yeah. ourselves behind the secured debt? instill um weather a storm and yep. come out whole yeah. Um, yeah interesting so i guess how would how would somebody think about developing those skills i guess banking obviously but 
any other way they could kind of improve that or learn about that? Banking, and then my my word of advice, and this is regardless of whether you want to do something that aligns with or tilts our way from a strategy standpoint or um, traditional private equity or even hedge funds for that matter, is model as much as you can while you're um, an investment banker analyst. I know different groups are set up differently. I was fortunate in that while even though I was at an industry group, we still did a lot of our own M&A and LBO modeling. Other industry groups at my bank while I was there just passed all that stuff off to Levfin or M&A. And they were just running comps and putting together the, you know, the acquisition candidate overview slides in the back of the deck and stuff like that. And, you know, you're just, you, you just get a whole different level of analyst experience when you're in the guts of a model and you're modeling out different balance sheets and how they ebb and flow and pick different toggles. Pick and, toggles. There you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> name. So tell me about like how someone would know. So, at a, let's say there's a bulge bracket, they, they have a LevFin and an M&A group. How do they know whether a specific industry group does that, the modeling and the, the actual M&A modeling in-house? In like, would, is the bank forthcoming about that? Did you, do, did you know about that going in? No, I think I lucked into the fact that my group did a lot of that. I had heard that it was something that was important, but that was almost simultaneous with hitting the desk. And so that's, that's and it probably- depends on that group, right? And you, did you luck into that group or were you, did you rank it a certain way? Did you know you were going to hit that group? I, I ranked it and I tried to rank it pretty high. And I think if I had not joined that group and hadn't had that experience, I would just weigh on my associates, VPs, directors to just say, Hey, listen, I'd love to, I'd really love to get this experience. And from their, you know, from their vantage point, if they don't have to place a call to a different floor to make their modeling changes, like it's almost beneficial for them too. So you can probably couch it that way. Okay, fair. So how, what's next for you, I guess? What's the, uh, and actually, can we talk a little bit about pay? Sure. In terms of yeah. like uh, banking. So you're there for a couple of years. Your first year, I assume, was what? What was it back in there? 70 base or 65 base, 70 base, 75 maybe? And yeah, it was- yeah, I want to say 60 to 70. This is, wow, this is years ago, but 60, yeah. to, 60 to 75 base. And then in, oh, like the 08 full year, um, I think I was bonus like 40 or 50. The, oh, wait, the, the down year. The down year, yeah. Which is still not that bad. And then the, well, bad when you consider how many hours you worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How about the first year? Was it similar? Was it almost like a flat bonus? The, like the second full year that I was there? Oh, I, I thought that was your that was your second year. So your your second year, what was your first year and your second year bonus? Um, Around. Yeah, uh, seventy five bonus going out on a. 90. Okay. Yeah. And that's when the that's when the world was falling apart. Yes. Yep. Yep. It's pretty good. Yeah, we're definitely highly ranked. I was. I just couldn't interview very well. <laughs> okay. So then, and then in terms of um, how you've kind of um, progressed. At your current fund, I know when you came in, it was around 100 base, and or no, that was yeah, you said about 100 base, and you know, all in maybe around 200 with the carry yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. So maybe say call 50 bonus and a bunch of other little bells and whistles. What was the what's been the trajectory as you because you've been there now for a long time, so it's kind of interesting. We we haven't had a lot of guests who've been in one place. Obviously, you've there's been subsequent fundraisings or funds since you've been there. I assume. Yep, a couple different funds have been raised. Yep. 
and I seem to be getting more more carry with each one. Or how, how should I think about it, or the listeners think about that um, in terms of from when you went from you know associate to um, senior associate to VP to principal? Like what's what's typical? Well, I mean, maybe you can give us a range on what you got, and then what do you what have you heard is typical for market? Yeah, so I can probably reference like what, at least in recent memory, how the trajectory has been. I'm, I'm going to forget the, the in-between, but yeah. you know that, that 200 of all-in comp between current bonus and carry starts to, you know, the numbers definitely start to get pretty big with the caveat that a lot of that starts to come in the form of carry. Um, it's, you know, it's not guaranteed. It's way longer dated. Most funds, I think these days have American style waterfalls. So the capital is going to get deployed over a three to five year period. There's going to be a harvest period and then the carry is going to start to hit other, you know, funds are also unique and there's varying degrees of this, but you've got capital commitments to these funds, which is different than carry. And so you as an investor actually have to invest in these funds. So let me unpack that a little bit. So you've been there for a long time. Are you seeing carry from the first little piece of carry you got as an associate now are you starting to see checks from that uh you started yeah starting to that that happened a year or two ago and as a as an associate your carry allocation is so small like that's nothing that i'm gonna be buying a Porsche on or anything like that. It's like a ten thousand dollar um, check here and there or something like that. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it, it starts to you understand the impact of that certainly as you stay with the firm for a longer period of time, and as funds get raised, your funds get stacked on top of each other, and so if there's going to be at some point this intersection, and this is probably true elsewhere at other strategies where funds, I don't know four, five, and six are starting to pay out carry at the same time. That might be five, six, seven years down the road, but like that's when this starts to get really amplified. Well, also because you're more senior in the, the slug of carry, you've been able to negotiate, I assume, is much higher. Yes, exactly. And so do you have a range in terms of like what an associate, like obviously it's small, but is there any like, how should we think about that in terms of like a fund like yours? Do you mind sharing like a range of sizes in terms of the fund size that you guys started at and where you're at? Yeah. So I'll, I'll be, I'll be loose in terms of, yeah, the that's range. Fine. but yeah. when I joined, we were a couple hundred million dollars, call it 400 to $500 million fund. We're, we're mm -hmm. over a billion now in terms of the capital that we're deploying per fund. Um, okay. and as an associate, it's tough because everyone thinks about it differently. A lot of funds, you know, talk about it and I still don't even understand it all that perfectly, but there's uh, points in terms of the number of points of carry you get out of the 2000 points that the entire GP gets. That's your little sliver of, of the GP's figure. Other funds um, think about it in terms of just the carry dollars that you have at work. And so if you assume a normal, two times return on a private equity style fund. Um, about a turn of that is gonna be profits. Management fees are gonna to have to get repaid and there's gonna right. be some drag overall. But if you kind of use that as a bogey and take 20% of that and then your own little sliver of the 20%, divide that over the number of years that you think that that carry will be paid out, that's effectively the amount of dollar, dollars at work that you have um, per year. That you could 
And that makes sense. So like, but as an associate, so the, out of the 20 points, the 20% carry upside, right, is what you're talking about in yeah. terms of that coming back. As an associate coming in, I know it's become more common. Um, it's, it's actually surprising that you got that um, back then because I think it was less common, but it, it actually has become more common. And was it something where like they were giving you like half a percent, half a point, a quarter of a point, a point, somewhere between a quarter and one point, or is it like a quarter point and five points? And then has it gone to the point where the partners are willing for, you know, they obviously believe in you, you've stuck around there where they've been, been willing in the latest funds to go between like five and 20 or like as high as that, or is it, am I in the ballpark at all? Yeah, I would say for associates, and I'm not sure what we're doing these days, but yeah, it's, it's probably five, 10, 15 um, points. In turn, it, this is totally dependent upon the size of the fund and, and the number of others that are that are. You mean you mean like BIPs five ten like oh yeah yep yep BIPs. okay yep okay and and then you know it, it goes up upwards from there okay fair yeah great and then so what's next for you you're gonna just ride ride all the way up on the with this fund is is that the plan it, I mean you've had a lot of success there and obviously. There's a lot of, um, assuming you guys do well, there's a lot of um, carry out there, carry dollars that work. Yeah. Um, so it could become, start to become really um, financially rewarding is, is the idea to ride that out and kind of, you know, become more of a leader there and eventually a partner. Yeah, I, I, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing in terms of our spot in the ecosystem. I think this flexible capital mandate where you're not like every other LBO or growth equity shop out there, which, you know, there are so many great strategies that do that, but they're restricted to just M&A processes where we can get involved in dividend recaps and complex balance sheet refinancings. And certainly the return, uh, the return potential for debt with warrants or preferred equity, like the number of times we're doing over three times our money on a deal is quite low, but we also don't have the, the epic flameouts, or we try not to have the epic flameouts right. uh, that, that some other the other other equity shops might. Um, so you can sort of triangulate to a similar similar fund return band in a very similar way. Well, I also see that a lot of limited partners like the strategy as well because there's a current return component to it, and so the J curve is much lower. So in terms of a capital supply for these types of strategies, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of deal flow that's relevant for the strategy. So I think it's a really interesting place to play the private equity, structured capital, um, special credit opportunities ecosystem. And then personally, I mean, I've really enjoyed growing up and becoming a, a deal leader, but then even starting to think about, you know, what's next. I think that the lower, lower middle market is one of the last bastions of lower uh, competition areas where you, you can actually still uncover some really unique nuggets of value down there where it's not 20 names that are all battling for the same unsecured term loan and they're going to uh, just beat themselves down in price to win it at the end of the day. And so, you know, whether it's within the current shop, a new strategy or launching out on my own at some point to, to start something new, I, I definitely think and hope that that's in the cards at, at some point. That's great. Yep. So before we call it, well, it's been almost an hour before we call it anything you'd like to anything else you'd like to share with the young listeners or to your younger self, any advice you would give looking back? Yeah, I would say I'll, I'll probably talk to my younger self because he doesn't know what he was doing at all. Um, <laughs> 
and and I'm I'm sure your listeners are going to be way more advanced than I was at that stage. Um, you know, think think about your next your think about your career as as a marathon, and I don't, I'm not even sure that that's the right way to characterize it. But it's so easy, certainly when you're an investment banking analyst, you're you're just thinking about the next couple of hours or tomorrow. You're not thinking about five years, ten years, fifteen years. And I felt that that bred a lot of um, discomfort in terms of anxiety about going through the interview process. And there was this track. And if I was off the track, that meant something was wrong with me. And I had those flame out interviews. I had an offer pulled. I I had some pretty dark moments. Just kind of trust that things are going to happen. And and this is a journey for everyone. And just because you don't fit the perfect mold of your classmates or even your, your school classmates that are looking for um, interview jobs. Like we found that some of the, our best hires have been the guys and gals that have not taken the traditional tracks. They're the grinders um, and they're going to do what it takes to get the work done. I think a lot of that adversary perceived adversity breeds a lot of um, both an interesting story, but just really good work at so just kind of trust that, you know, if it's something you want, put your head down, fight for it. It's going to happen. Might take a little more time than you'd like, but you're going to get there at the end of the day. Great words to live by. Thanks so much, yeah. Pick Toggle. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed it, Pat. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, Patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. And until next time.